Coming up today on The Courier Daily, how is the crisis affecting working women? We're with the Chief Strategy Officer of The Riveter. What we're trying to say to our audience and the working women of the United States is, we understand what you're going through. We know that this pandemic has just opened everyone's eyes to the double standard of working motherhood, the inequalities of working motherhood. And we were all doing it differently because it all just needed to be jerry-rigged in order to make it work. And later, we talk distribution, supply chains, and sparkling water with the co-founder of Ugly. In terms of like the product proposition and the range we have, we've actually been in a pretty good position to ride this out. But you just can't replace, with summer coming, people being thirsty and buying a drink. The footfall is lower, naturally, because everyone's been told to stay inside. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 7th of May, and this is The Courier Daily. We've been catching up with small business owners every day from Berlin and Hong Kong to Detroit and Atlanta to find out clever ways they're adapting to the new normal. So first up today, is the crisis affecting men and women equally? Well, I'm on the line now with Giovanna Gray Lockhart. She's the chief strategy officer of The Riveter, a fantastic community, co-working space, and online platform for working women. They've got locations everywhere from Seattle, Austin, and Dallas to Minneapolis, Denver, and Portland. And like every co-working space right now, times are tough. But The Riveters launched and offered its new digital platform for free as a way to give women the resources, talks, and workshops they need to navigate these tough times. So, Giovanna, I mean, what's the state of The Riveter right now? What have you guys been going through the past couple of weeks? The last couple of weeks have been an emotional roller coaster. Three weeks ago, we were trying to decide when to reopen our co-working spaces. And now it's looking like we've got to think about what does our business look like without those co-working spaces. We've obviously seen a huge dip in our revenue, which has been incredibly stressful given that we're a venture-backed business that was really on an upward trajectory for the last six months to a year. We pivoted to digital, like a lot of companies, and I'm proud to say that we did that very quickly, and we did it in a way that was not in our original plan. We had always wanted to have a digital version to our community and our content, but it was going to look more like a co-working. People would pay us a monthly fee. We would produce excellent programming and content specifically for working women, and that would just be another revenue stream. COVID hits, we had to actually pivot to offering that digital component for free. Yeah, I know different co-working companies are taking different strategies. So like Ethel's Club, I know in Brooklyn, they have a digital membership. Whereas Neuhaus, I spoke to Josh from Neuhaus, they are not doing that. They're saying, we're not going to pivot. I mean, they furloughed almost all of their staff and they have a skeleton staff, but they're going to kind of just think about what they want to do when they relaunch physically. Yeah, I mean, digital was always in our plan because we wanted to reach as many women as possible. There's 75 million working women in the United States and no brand or media company or anyone really speaks for them. So we saw this opportunity really rooted in wanting to see change and change in workplace equity, pay equity, paid family leave, affordable childcare. And rather than going about that politically, we decided that we would build this company that would essentially create that on its own. What we found is that 
you can have these co-working spaces and you can have a lot of them. You can even have as many as we work and you're still not everywhere in the country. So in order to reach women that are in places maybe that are more rural or, you know, parts of the U.S. that we were never going to be able to have a physical presence, we knew that we were going to have a digital community. And what's been fascinating is now we have over 20,000 people on this digital platform, women who are coming for work-life support. You know, how do I work from home with kids? They're coming to us for all kinds of advice about how to pivot their own skill set into this new economy. Obviously, we have huge joblessness in the United States. We have had members on the platform saying, here's my resume, my qualifications, and other members saying, hey, I saw this job posting, you'd be really great for it. So it's like taking a community to solve the very pressing issues that women are feeling today. And we did make it free. So we had a plan to launch paid, which we did for about five days. And then the news kind of took a turn for the worse. And I said to my colleagues, we can't charge people right now. Brands that are bigger than ours, right? HBO and Nike were offering their platforms and their services for free. We had to do the same. So, you know, we went back to the board with a new plan and we said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a community. We're going to bring in as many working women as possible and we're going to make it free. And all of our programming, we do about 20 hours of programming a week, all around topics that working women can really use right now in this moment. We completely reframed all of our programming buckets to be very COVID relevant. So for instance, you know, when we will have a well-known celebrity on talking about working motherhood, that'll be a well-attended event, but a resume writing workshop will have five times the amount of people with a host that no one's ever heard of and has a small Twitter following. I mean, all of that being said, so, I mean, it is free. So where's the money coming from, I suppose, is the million dollar question. How are you sustaining the company right now? Because you look at another company like The Wing, which you also have worked at, and they are, at least in the public image, is that they're not doing well right now. So how are you guys differentiating yourself? I mean, I can't speak to what The Wing is doing now, but I can say that for The Riveter, we are, um, you know, we were lucky enough to close a small series A1 round right before the pandemic. We closed on March 13th. It was incredibly lucky. We also had to furlough workers. We furloughed our largely our operations staff, so people who are working in our co-working spaces. You know, the revenue right now is coming from some of our private office holders. So we do have private offices within our co-working spaces, and essential workers are still using them. So they are, if their businesses are deemed essential, they can access their spaces with like a remote entry key card. So we're not staffing them, we're cleaning them every night. And, you know, explaining to people that they have to stick to the social distancing protocols, but they can still use the space. So there's some revenue coming from there. But then there's also, we do brand partnerships. And for instance, we're kicking off a series this week with UBS. They are interested in getting in front of our audience because obviously women are the financial decision makers in most households. 
because we do represent the 75 million working women in a way that no other brand does, we are still able to have great relationships with brands and through, you know, sponsored content and programming, things like that. Do you think the long game then is, you know, waiting it out right now with really great content, sitting on your cash reserves to kind of just like not go under? And then when COVID passes, you guys just reopen your spaces again. That's the hope. You know, I think that as we see states slowly starting to reopen, it will affect, you know, our different spaces. We have spaces in California, Oregon, Minnesota, Texas. These have all vastly different political dynamics and governors treating reopening pretty differently. And that must make it so difficult. Whereas in the UK here, it's like, there's just one rule. And you know, it's not city by city. I started my career in politics, and I have to say, I can't imagine running a campaign right now, being in government, it would be so incredibly difficult, maybe just slightly more difficult than running a small entrepreneurial business like ours. But the truth is, people, you know, in times of crisis, they need their leaders. And those leaders sometimes are in the form of elected officials, but they're sometimes in the form of business leaders as well. You know, I think that what we're trying to say to our audience and the working women of the United States is, we understand what you're going through. We know that this pandemic has just opened everyone's eyes to the double standard of working motherhood, the inequalities of working motherhood, and that we were all doing it differently because it all just needed to be jerry-rigged in order to make it work. I have a full-time job. My husband works full-time. My two children need to do their Zoom school, which is why I have this call with you at 8.30, because at 9.15 for two hours, I will be on a computer with my kids trying to make sure they learn something. And that is, it's exposing just the lack of support that working parents have to do both these things. What happens if people are called back into the office, but school hasn't gone back into session? I read an article recently that 14% of working women are saying that they might quit their jobs because they make less than their husbands due to, you know, systemic pay inequity. And if someone's going to stay home, it's going to be them. And that's obviously going to set women back even further than we already are in terms of pay equity. And that's if offices aren't joined up with school openings, basically, if they're kind of staggered or kind of not talking to one another. Exactly. And so what do we do about childcare? Some people had babysitters, some people had daycare. You know, we don't have a nationalized system in this country to take care of children. So right now you're piecing it together You're not calling on elderly parents because they have to quarantine. It's very, very serious problem that actually we feel people aren't talking about enough. But when we hearken back to like why we started this company and why we named it The Riveter, if you think about Rosie the Riveter, who, you know, during World War II, she was the emblem of women who sacrificed quite a lot in their home life to go out and do jobs that men had typically done, work in airplane part factories. But the federal government said, we're going to establish child care centers because we know that there's someone needs to take care of these kids if the moms are all out working in the 
military industrial complex. It's interesting that now it's like, okay, moms, we need you to work, but you've also got to figure out this other piece of your life and you're kind of on your own. And that is for those of us who have resources, we can figure it out. But people who don't, you know, just creates a a further economic divide in this country. The Riveter is trying to, in this moment, really say when things are going back to normal, normal is not okay for working women. The old normal does not work for us. We need a new normal. And that's what we're really trying to do is create a large enough audience of working women who say, this is what I need. And when they share their stories, when women share their stories, or really anyone shares their stories, that's when change can really take place. Giovanna Gray Lockhart there from The Riveter. We're going to cross now to New York to hear from an old friend of mine and a former Courier columnist, Hugh Thomas. He's the CEO and co-founder of Ugly Drinks, which has been on an absolute rocket ship lately, ramping up its distribution and growing its markets. And Hugh, I mean, you moved out to New York actually from London a while back to grow the U.S. operation, but now obviously shops are closed. Luckily, though, you've been growing your direct-to-consumer offering for quite a long time. So how's it all going over there in lockdown? Obviously, we're a global business now, so I'm in New York. My co-founder, Joe's in London. So in many ways, we've been used to working remotely for a couple of years now. But it means also that we have many different things happening in different parts of our universe. You know, we have a business in Tennessee, in Arizona, New York, California, London, and each of those places has, had to, has reacted differently to COVID. Uh, and we also have a big online business, which has seen growth that we weren't expecting as well. So in a good way on that one. And then in, in other channels, in other parts of our business, things have been impacted you know, massively. So an example in London, where we were selling in universities and cafes and places like that, obviously those places are shut. So business is obviously slower there. Whereas in Kroger in Tennessee, People have been going into store and bulk buying a lot of sparkling water. So we've had to react to that. I do have to ask how you chose Tennessee. Did you throw a dart at a map and say, you know, Tennessee looks a good place to launch? So for us, we're always about proving out where we can work. And I think there's a lot of proof that sparkling water and healthy drinks can sell in New York and California. And so we've kind of proven that. So what we wanted to do was see whether we could work in a soda state where soda consumption is high and Mountain Dew is from Tennessee. There's many other reasons. Nashville is a great city that's in a lot of growth. So you actually have a very interesting cultural scene, which has a lot of opportunities to build a brand there. There's some awesome retail opportunities, two big colleges, awesome music scene. And there's a mix of rural and urban that makes it a really interesting test market that if you can prove out that you can work there, the theory is that we can take that same playbook and roll it out to some of the other middle America states that potentially get bypassed by I guess more expensive, which ugly isn't expensive, healthier food products. The mission for our business has always been about how do we make and how do we democratize healthy beverages? How can we make something affordable and accessible to a lot of people? So you don't see $10 green juices in uh, convenience stores in Tennessee. You see a lot of soda. And Ugly is a sugar and sweetener-free, calorie-free brand that we think can compete with soda. The trial there has been going really well. And like you say, it's not a traditional model for a lot of startups who will look at New York and California and central London. But 
that's always where, you know, Joe and I've been ambitious in the sense that we wanted to create a healthy drink that the soda consumer would pick up. So that's why we're testing ourselves in the hardest place to do it. It's a great idea. Why join a sea of other competitors in New York and LA specifically when you can go to someplace like Tennessee and try a, a really fresh model and see if it sticks? That's it. And we're doing the same in Arizona. Uh, we'll be launching in Oregon uh, later this year, potentially Illinois as well. Obviously, COVID's disrupted some of these timings, but the idea was that we can test ugly in very different places and learn about America quickly. For British entrepreneurs listening to this, the America seems daunting, but really it is just like bite-sized chunks of a big apple, pun intended. Whereas the UK is kind of like the same size as one of the states that we launch in. So the UK is like smaller than Texas. Yeah, exactly. It's much easier to cover the whole area effectively. So for us, it was about making some decisions on where we wanted to test ourselves. And Tennessee felt like a good opportunity and it's been really successful so far. And as you say, we don't have to fight against other startups who've just raised lots of money as well. We're up against, you know who, big soda companies and big energy drink companies, which is a totally different challenge in itself. They are very well run and have a lot of money. So it's different challenges, but um, we've been really enjoying it. And it's strange because obviously I'm in New York, which is in lockdown and going to be in lockdown for a long time. London in a similar position, but Tennessee's reopened. People eating in restaurants, you know, people back out there. Everyone's wearing masks and it's not quite business as usual. But as a founder and CEO, I've had to adjust to, okay, that state's reopened. So we have a team in that state who are going back to work with PPE, with the new protocol on how we operate in the new normal. Certainly since the start of COVID, we're probably eight, nine weeks in here. Our New York office, we closed eight weeks ago. We've had to adjust and we did the right thing in terms of the safety of our employees initially. And so we stopped everybody from going out into the field right when this was emerging as kind of something that in, in the upward curve of the contagiousness of this. And we're also very aware of the social impact of having our team going out visiting stores. But at the same time, these stores are vital for the economy as well and vital for people right now. And the product we're selling, canned water with long shelf life and is an essential product at a really affordable price point for lots of people who are maybe tight on cash right now. So we made the decision as these states are reopening to reopen and reintroduce our teams in the safest way we can. And we reviewing how that goes every day. That's like this adjustment to a new normal, right? And who knows how long these states are going to stay open for? I mean, if there's a second wave, everybody right now is saying, you know, it's going to take two weeks for people to even know if the reopenings are going to cause infection rates to go back up right? Because the incubation period could be 14 days. So for all we know, Tennessee and all these other states might get locked down again temporarily. It's it. We're going, you know, month by month, even even day by day some weeks. I think now we're trying to get a little bit further ahead of ourselves, but certainly for the last eight weeks, and we won't be in the same boat here. You don't want to look at the news because it's stressful in itself, but you have to from a business point of view. The 12-month plan that I spent months drawing up and refining and going through versions essentially got torn up in about 24 hours. And then you have to adjust, and that's... Uh, just the reality of being a founder. And personally for me, this sounds crazy, but this recent situation doesn't feel too different for me personally. My, my life is pretty chaotic anyway. And like, it's a lot of pressure anyway. So like, this is just another obstacle that's been thrown in the way. I didn't really think we'd have to ever have to come against something like this, but I just think, you know, there aren't many things that can happen that shut down retail in multiple continents and also affect the investment economy and also affect the health of your employees all at the same time. So it's kind of like a perfect storm where it affects the investment community 
because obviously their sources of their income is impacted and also their portfolio is impacted and every business is impacted in some way. And then also just telling people to stay at home is unprecedented. Luckily for Ugly, we have been prepared to be direct to consumer and omni-channel for a while. So we were able to then dial that up Whereas many companies, they're in different positions and we're very fortunate to be doing what we're doing. And I feel for anyone who runs a restaurant, a hotel, bar, you know, the list goes on of people who, you know, adjusting to that is really challenging. Like there's only so much you can really do to replace that. Yeah, you guys paved the road for this direct-to-consumer model for a long time. Yeah, we've been refining beverage direct-to-consumer for a couple of years now. So, you know, for us to upscale and react to the demand has not been easy, of course, because it's like multi-100% growth month on month, which is not easy because it affects supply, it affects, you know, and our warehouses are also affected by the virus, people having to take, be in, isolating themselves, the delivery systems are under strain. So it's not plain sailing, but we put ourselves into a position to make the most of it. But then, you know, other things we had planned, certainly the, the retailers where all the buyers are now working from home or some of the key meetings, the big trade shows have all been essentially cancelled for the first half of this year and expecting the rest of the year. Just means that like some of the new business we had planned may or may not happen. There's opportunities that have come up that weren't there. Have the rise in sales from at-home deliveries outweighed the loss of sales from, you know, the local bodega and grocery store or no? In terms of our plan, like we're actually in a pretty strong position, but the long-term growth for a beverage company comes from when people are thirsty. And, you know, you can see by the big beverage companies impacted, I think Coca-Cola is 25% down on its forecast. Yeah, but nobody orders Coca-Cola to their home. Not yet, yeah. So like they're a little bit behind, I'd say, on the on the curve on that. And that's the vision we had for the future. But just the scale of their business, they're available everywhere, right? So when they're available in venues and cafes, restaurants, bars, I mean, you name it. And there's only so much you can do to adjust to those being shut overnight. In terms of like the product proposition and the range we have, we've actually been in a pretty good position to ride this out. But you just can't replace, with summer coming, people being thirsty and buying a drink. The footfall is lower, naturally, because everyone's been told to stay inside. So we're just adjusting, increasing our direct-to-consumer. Amazon's been in strong growth for us, uh, reacting on the retail side and seeing, as you say, how these states reopen and react to reopening is kind of like a daily pulse check right now for us. It's been an interesting challenge as a CEO, but I'm sure there's lots of people, you know, whatever size business you have, you're impacted. So everyone's in the same boat. I'm a London restaurant fan, like passionately, and just seeing the way some of these businesses have reacted and pivoted is uh, pretty inspiring and like something that is exciting to see how humans react to these things. So we're trying to do the same where we can and do what we can to learn and, and learn about ourselves as well. And that's it for today. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts. And as ever, sign up to our newsletter, Courier Weekly, for more stories of pivoting, adapting, surviving, and maybe even reopening. Head to couriermedia.co slash sign up. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. Courier Daily is back again tomorrow. <laughs>